Matt, good to see you, bud. Good it's to like see I'll you. see you on Saturdays anyway, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, how long has it been? Well, actually, it's been a little while because uh, yeah, I'm glad to see you're feeling better. Yeah, I'm up on my feet, and, uh, and Rocco's got some family stuff he's dealing with, too, so we're wishing him the best as well. Absolutely. My man, uh, thank you for doing this, by the way. Sure. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about something we talked about on air a couple weeks ago. We mm-hmm. started going down a road of discussing um, the generations, and we, mm-hmm. we I was very interested in getting your take on what your thoughts are in regards to what uh, some of the probably obvious generational things are that keep distrust or things that your generation is annoyed by my generation things that your generation looks at in regards to how we are that either folks are struggling to understand Mm -hmm. or pisses y'all off or you all (laughs) laugh at or maybe there's some anger in some of the stuff too so i think i think talking about that's healthy well i think one of the biggest things because i was thinking about that and i think one of the biggest things that the older generation may not realize or has yet to fully spiritually envelop themselves in is that our generation and i speak as a 30 year old you know 30 and a half year old now um our generation is the generation that's of, right you're getting old I, yeah i would like to i think if there was a term for my generation that I could come up with is is the receipts generation okay what do you mean that because of our pension for media and because of all the access that we have more so there and it's not just video and audio it's it's text as well that it feels like more and more it is almost impossible to get away with lying huh okay now when i say that i'm not necessarily saying that if you lie you can't get away with the you know getting away with the fruits of that lie I mean, we see in politics all the time. They're blatantly lying to us. 100%. But I think more so now it's obvious that they are. It's obvious that they're lying. And it's not just politicians, whether it's, you know, talk show hosts or newscasters or, you know, controversial people on Twitter. People will, you know, they have the technology to screenshot things, you know, save video clips and put them back to back and say, huh. What I see in column A and what I see in column B are two different things. And that, I think, is where the distrust comes from. That is where this idea of we're not going to trust you. And, 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 and the issue with that is that human beings are very capable and almost required to change. They're required to change their minds. They're required to adapt. But at the same time, when you have the power of a public image, a power to put yourself out there as a personality, you have to be very careful with that. And I think that's where the distrust comes from, is that people will say, you know, and it's not hard to contradict yourself over the course of your lifetime. It's not. No, not at all. No. You, you should you, be expected, right? The way you feel at 15 is going to be much different than the way you feel at 30. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's called growth and evolution. Uh-huh. But whenever you... If you're coming across with the same arrogance or the same level of I'm right, you're wrong mm-hmm. in both cases, it's going to come off terribly if all that's documented. And I think that's, again, that's where the generational thing comes in. Because with social media, you can look back and say, okay, well, what did they say about this? What did they say about that? And you can catch them in a lie pretty easily. So if I understand you correctly, 
the way my generation and the generation above us uh, and going back, obviously, or at least in the era, the last hundred so years of, of um, media, mm-hmm. as we know it, there really wasn't any, well, there wasn't any check on a lot of things. No. The way things were said, the way things were done, and being held accountable for your prior statements or actions was not at a premium like it is today. No, no. And, and which is weird because there could be, I mean, because the way it was back then, there was so much, there, there were a lot of things going on. Like you take somebody like Nixon, who was very famous for, you know, lying or hiding things. But tricky it, dick. It, it, it was such. It was. It was. It was in such a chaotic time culturally and politically that, with as few outlets as there were, he could kind of get away with it. It's when you are, and, and and that's another thing when it comes to lying. Usually, the ones who get caught, and it's just like anything else, like usually the ones who get caught doing something wrong are the dumbasses. Yeah. They're the dumbasses. Yeah. They're the ones who will say something and then blatantly change it in a quick amount of time with no rhyme or reason. And you're just like, like dude, we, we see what you said. These don't add up. What happened? And I think that's what Nixon did. I think you know, pretty much every president after him probably had some form of that going on, too. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another thing, too. When it comes to the history. Because you take something like. And I know this is getting into political territory, but yeah, we can do that. So we do. You know, you, whenever I grew up, and, and that's the other thing that's weird about my generation. Like our generation, to a certain extent, like I think the younger generations, like those who maybe were born around like 2000 or so, okay. they're now in their mid 20s, which is a scary thought to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Laugh it up. <laughs> Laugh it up. It is kind of funny, though. For an old guy, it is right? kind of funny. <laughs> it also kind of sucks. <laughs> but the fact is, is that not only does modern technology allow those who are lying right now to get caught, but it changes the narrative of a lot of things we learned growing up. Okay. Because my generation grew up, you know, we were, you know, elementary school kids in the 90s. And the way things were taught in the 90s was pretty much very, I don't want to say cleansed, but friendly let's put that like, what way. do you mean like when you learn about stuff like thanksgiving or stuff like columbus day or stuff like that it was all very sort of celebratory historical not really controversial mm-hmm. and then you know 10 years down the line the world wide web becomes more prominent everybody mm-hmm. has internet now everybody has wi-fi now you start learning something things like oh wait a minute this might have been a really dark time in history highlighted by a few cool days you know mm-hmm you know, Thanksgiving, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to kill you, <laughs> but first let's eat. <laughs> you know? That's great. So I think whenever those facts come to light, and certainly with the historical context behind all of it and for how long it's been, I think when you mix that historical level of lying with the modern level of it that's pretty blatant, it becomes a lot easier to distrust what's around you. But I think the the problem is that you may get so enveloped in distrust that you forget how to trust. Mm, I think we're going through that that now. I think I think you're right, and I and I and it's it's a shame too because if you 
feel that distrust is the name of the game, you feel like that dishonesty is the name of the game, which in a lot of cases it is, it doesn't leave that room of trusting somebody to the point where things can be peaceful, things can be good, things can be all right, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's in any situation. Mm-hmm. And that's not the fault of the other person. It's the fault of whoever's doing the distrusting. Yeah, and how they got themselves uh, in a mindset to distrust first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we I just had a podcast with uh, Rocco Coza, Matt, Matt Shurak, and um, David Allen, and trust was like the big thing there. But it's just coming off this podcast, and I, I mean, that's exactly right. I, I was sharing with them, Matt, that I go through um, – Unfortunately, I go through a lot of my day expecting to be lied to. I don't want to live this way, but no. what I have experienced in real estate, sadly, is I expect a lot of uh, bullshit. And it isn't just from my fellow real estate agents. It's the it's everything. You know, I just feel like I'm constantly. And the reason I feel this way is because I have the history to prove that, oh, that, that, was, that was bullshit, that was bullshit, that was bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I try hard not to have that as my default mechanism. And I try to go in and believe everything first and let them prove me wrong. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think it's a better way to live. But I think I, I'm not alone in this belief. I think a lot of people are running around right now as default. Their default is to distrust. I think, yeah, I, I agree with that. And it, it sucks because when it comes to that feel, because. And, and that's another thing, too. And I wonder, you bring up a very good point, because I talk about how the these upcoming generations are a bit more, um, you know, aware of what's going on. I almost said woke, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that word enough on the radio. <laughs> Eric, when you're recording this, looking at this later, please bleep that out. Uh, <laughs> Never. The W word. Um, no, I don't think anybody knows what that means. I, that, that's a very good it's point. It's funny, too. We're, we're all upset about a word either pro or for, but no one can really give you a definition. So. Well, on, on, a quick, kinda, on a quick side note, it's it, kind of like studio wrestling. My <laughs> very, very good point. I would say it, it, my definition of what woke stands for these days is a little side thing. Is it's basically the Walmart of slurs. Ah, okay, that's good. Like basically that's anybody good. who falls under that category, like. You know, politically speaking, whether it's, you know, the race issue or the uh, the sexual issue, mm-hmm. like basically anybody that is hated falls under woke. Hmm. And it's just sort of like a one and all, not quite controversial enough, but still controversial word that you just throw out there is like, well, I think you're woke. <laughs> Wash your hands. I have, claimed, just go forward. I have claimed my superiority for the day. Where's my lunch? <laughs> <laughs> Where's my lunch? <laughs> but anyways, uh, getting back to this idea of distrusting, distrusting. I wonder how that's going to affect the younger generations coming up. I really do, because we talk about having that feeling of distrust and feeling lied to. I think the reason we feel that way is because there was a point in our lives where we did believe everything. Okay. Where we did believe everything as far as, you know, whether it came to religion or the power of, you know, power, for lack of a better term. Right, like, right. You know, your teachers were right, your parents were right, your priest yeah. was right, your whatever yeah. was right. Yeah. And then there became a point where, like you say, it all became bullshit. So there's that pain, and I think the reason we distrust is almost like a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that the possibility of lying's there, so now to better ourselves against it, we prepare for that. We mentally prepare for that. Right. It's intellectual. It's it's almost intelligent. But it's it. the origins of it are sort of in this feeling of betrayal. Okay. Whereas with the information age coming up, 
if they know everything and they know that you know they go into it realizing okay well they're lying they're lying they're lying and this is you know, very complicated like history. earlier in their life at the beginning of their their journey they right, like they won't have that sort of faux optimism that we had yeah got it so i'm wondering if they don't have that how are they going to react whenever like is it all just going to be as pragmatic as possible for the rest of their lives or just sort of you know going to look at everything black and white and x and y or are they just is there going to be some sort of like breakthrough like in the giver where it's like oh color you know i have feelings mm-hmm, now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i wonder about that so you hit on a good point that i can relate to I, i've always believed that there's that moment when a child and i'm not saying they become an adult this moment but it's somewhere in there when a child realizes that the things they took as gospel from first their parents second their extended family maybe third like authority figures and other elders in the community when you see examples where mm. you can rationalize in your own mind that that is bullshit or that's not true i've always been told this but that's wrong i think every generation has had moments that way i know i certainly did whether it was my father's things he would say or i gave you an example i uh, ran ran for politics uh, in the in the 90s and i was running for school board first election as a young, crazy bastard, early twenty year, I didn't win, thank goodness. <laughs> but I was in the early twenties. But what the thing was, though, I started to see teachers who had just taught me five, seven years earlier. I now saw them as adults and fellow yeah. constituents, right? Mm-hmm. And then I started to understand as I was looking at power plays going on in the school and in the administration mm-hmm. and dirty tricks and mere behavior and affairs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I lost something at that moment. Now, that was my early 20s. It had taken that long for me to see. But it, my yeah. eyes were open like, wow, I really revered these adults. And I revered them and also revered what they said, what they taught, their philosophy. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I mean, they're doing things, I mean, I, at least I believe they are from what I understand, that I would never think of doing before. I mean, just I wouldn't do that. And that brought that reality to me that, wow, life, real life is much different than what I was being told. So I believe, I think we've always kind of gone through that. The difference might be that what you're talking about is you now have a generation that not, not only is going to have that epiphany or just had that epiphany in your generation, but you also now have all of this vehicle of the web as a truth source, if used correctly, mm-hmm. to verify all the suspicions. Well, yeah, <laughs> true. T- t- two points to that. Number okay. one, I, I my epiphany, or at least one of them that I can vividly recall, I was in the gifted program growing up, and I was in part of the academic games or whatever. And I remember one year I went down, I think it was to North Carolina, and one of the chaperones was the teacher I had, I think, in like kindergarten. And her daughter was coming with us, and it was, you know, at one point I during the trip I remember just going down and like I was bored in my room. I was like I just went down to like the lobby area, and I noticed they were all hanging out in this uh, this restaurant. It was weird, just like you know the, these teachers. They're, they're sort of you know you're raised to have this mentality of like night and day when it comes to teachers. You know, they're the authority figures. They're the ones with all the order. You're the unruly kid, and also you're just hanging out with them. They're drinking beers or margaritas. Or Did whatever. you view that as being cool or weird? A little bit of both, a little okay. bit of both, but it was definitely the uh, a shattering of that veneer of authority, where it's just like, no, these are just they're, they're people, they're people too. And the other thing is that when you, you talk about the, having that epiphany, 
I'm thinking that the generations coming up aren't going to have that epiphany. Good point. That they're just going to have that information there, and it's not going to be a matter of that switch flipping. It's because it's already going to be flipped. Like they're not going to have that epiphany of go start questioning their parents when they're like eight. I don't mean I don't mean innocent questions. Like I always asked why, right? My parents hated that, right? But most kids do. But I mean, they really question them because, like, hey, I'm looking at this thing on a screen that says you're bu- that what you're saying is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it may even be earlier than that because I mean, think about you know, and I don't know why my mind went here with this, but I almost from one perspective, these the perspective we're talking about. Like thinking about the very bizarre and probably not right two child policy or one child policy that China has, I thought there's no really effective way of doing that properly for any sort of moral reasons. And then I just thought of a reason why that might be a situation. Because let's say you're a five year old kid that was born in, let's see, it's 2023, so 2018. You were born in 2018. <sighs> Anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to We're Old, the podcast. <laughs> but say you're, you know, you're born in 2018 and you are, you're getting into grade school, you turn five, you turn six, and let's say you have someone who's, you, know, you have an older brother or sister who's like 14. You know, they've been through the gauntlet and they've been through the information age. So they're basically a source of information. Mm-hmm. And if you get in that conversation of what are you learning in school today? Oh, we're, you know, we're learning about Columbus Day. It's like... <laughs> Let me tell you a story. <laughs> so what I'm saying is is that if they have all that early on and they're questioning it early on, I think they're just going it, to – it's not a matter of even having distrust. I think it's just we could be part of their vocabulary that, you know, these things happen, bad or good. Okay. And then they just have to make do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I – but you, your point's gr- well made. That coming to age, age is going to keep dipping lower and lower. Oh yeah, it really is because of what's available to them. Yeah, and I and I think it's it, it, the the point that can be made here is that there's too much information for any person in authority to get away with bullshitting. There really is, and I think, but I but the problem is going to lie in the powers that be because my generation, like I said. Was is old enough to have had that moment of epiphany, okay? Where things went from ha to uh, and realizing that some of the things that we thought were okay were not okay, and that some of the people we knew were not okay. So they're gonna be the ones teaching these kids about this, and they're gonna be the ones getting questioned right away. And so the question for these teachers is: Do you try to you know put the sheen back on and say you know we're not gonna talk about that? You know, if you want to learn this, here we go. Or you just come right out and say, okay, we're going to be talking about a really controversial topic today. And then this is why I think, you know, when you talk about this divide of, you know, what to teach and what not to teach, what's going on in Florida right now, I think, is a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff with DeSantis, like, outlawing all these books mm-hmm. saying, you know, we're not going to talk about that. Why not? And mm-hmm. that's when the questions are going to start. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a, it's such a slippery slope for me because some things – I don't like to use the word offend, but some things rub against my sensibilities. But at the same time, I don't have a good response to how I would manage that because managing it then 
rubs against another set of sensibilities I have. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In terms of free speech and and, and it, it really we're in a weird we're in a weird pickle right now and it's so subjective to who happens to be in power at the moment in a certain area has to say until that power shifts and then things get undone and i think that's i think that that's going to happen for a long time well i think the elephant in the room needs to be addressed rather quickly when it comes to that and i think it's a matter of when you do talk about power and i understand you know when it comes to conversation i think that that's a power that everybody should have at any given moment in time yeah you have the power to control conversation if you don't want to talk about something you don't have to talk about it if you don't want it to be you know part of it and it is a little tricky in the schools because let's let's say a kid doesn't want to hear about this kind of thing then okay you know they're yeah. one out of 27 do you cater to the one or to the 26 you know, once you're an adult, it becomes a lot easier to do that. Certainly. Although we don't take that responsibility seriously. We just, we just yell and scream and just cry. Well, instead, hey. of being personal, instead of personal discernment and just move away from things we're not interested in. Well, let's see, that, that's, just, that's just ego. That's just ego where people yeah. will like say, it's like, no, you, you don't want to talk about how I'm right and you're wrong. You get back. You're right now. You, tell, <laughs> I, you stand there and sit there and listen to me tell you that you're wrong. Uh-huh. Who, who, who wants to go through that? Nobody wants to go through that. But okay. I, but I think the problem is that, again, there's there's too much information out there to get away with BS in it. And what's furthermore is that when it comes to that level of information, when it comes to that level of conversation that's to be had, because there's so much information out there you know, the teachers aren't going to have an opportunity to gloss over anything that they don't want to talk about. They may, again, they may have the power of conversation to say, all right, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that right here, right now. But eventually, if a kid decides, okay, well, if you're not going to talk about it, I'm going to find out about it, then they can go on the internet. They can go to their local library if they, you know, want to go old school. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they still exist, I was told. Oh, they do. <laughs> they absolutely do. They're not as used it much anymore, but they're still there. But again, they have the power to, you know, you know, teachers, they can sort of refute conversation, but they can't refute information. Yeah, it's almost a losing battle, you know, if you try to, right? It really is a losing battle. And much like we were talking about with another job that I won't mention right now because, you know, uh-huh. don't want to uh-huh. piss anybody off, but, you know, nah, the you, other, you never do that. <laughs> what, me? <laughs> Six years in talk radio, I never pissed anybody off? Maybe no. a few. Maybe a few. But the issue with. Teaching is not just the fact that you're dealing with all these dilemmas of morality mm-hmm. and the power of conversation, the power of information. You're also dealing with the fact you're not getting paid a whole lot of money. Yeah. So now we have another conundrum in there. Right. It's like if you're a teacher, you're not getting paid enough. You have to buy your own equipment. And you have these kids that are want to talk about things you're not supposed to talk about, either due to administration things or yeah. your own personal beliefs. It is a very tangled web right now. And I do not put any you know rem, you know aggravation towards teachers like if you're teaching you know god bless you you know yeah and the funny part about tough. it is it isn't just even right now it's always been they've always been underpaid they've it's always been a profession mm-hmm. i mean i'm talking i'm talking let me just be very clear i'm yeah. talking about elementary junior high and senior high the co- yeah. collegians and everything in terms of pay and all that but yeah, yeah but from a from a public school standpoint and even private schools, because the private school salaries oftentimes mimic what the public schools are. So it isn't like the private schools are giving out much more money to teachers either. No, they are. You know, 
But yeah, it, it that. But my point is, that's always been a thing. It isn't just right now. It isn't even a generation back or two or three. It's always been a thing. Mm-hmm. Like we don't value it. We say we value it. We say we value education because we love our children and our society, and they're the priority and they're the future. And I think most people inside feel that way. Yet the actions when it comes to schooling their brains doesn't seem to line up. And that's not anyone's generation. That's always been that way. Oh, of course, it's always been that way. And I think the idea of having like pieces of information or um, things that contradict each other, that's always been there too. It's just that now you have an entire generation that has access to that. An entire generation that has a very easy and accessible way of doing that. And that hasn't always been the case. Especially with social media, especially with like YouTube and mm-hmm. um, you know file sharing and stuff like that, you, know, you could easily find clips where some celebrity or some pundit is saying something completely different than they said twenty years ago, and that is where. And again, it's new to us in a sense, like not new and like brand new, but over the last few years, it's become a thing more so. And that is an, and and one thing that I've really sort of struggled with when it comes to that. Because we talk about distrust, one thing that I really think is fading from my generation, and again, from a pragmatic sense, I get it, and I'm not necessarily against it pragmatically, but spiritually, I'm a little frightened by it, is forgiveness. Because again, if you're carrying all these receipts, you're carrying all this information, um, that can you know contradict something that somebody else has said, whether they're trying to change or not. You know, you could, I mean, I don't think there is a, a, a sentence as short and as striking to social media as a two-word sentence. It's a, it's a two-word question. This you? Mm-hmm. If, if you get this you'd on Twitter or Facebook, it ruins your whole day. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thankfully mm-hmm. haven't gotten to that point yet, but, you know. It, it doesn't take long for somebody like, oh, the, the, and, and I see this on sports Twitter all the time. You know, somebody will say something like, this is going to be our year, or this is how I feel about certain things. And somebody will p- put an old tweet of theirs up against it saying, this you? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh. You, you think know. that's a healthy way for us to live? <sighs> or is that an over-exaggeration? I, I, I don't think it's a, well, I don't think it's healthy, but I don't think it's necessarily a part of, like, a, a hardcore part of life, let's put it that way. Like, stuff when it comes to, like, contrasting people's sports opinions, yeah, that's one yeah, thing. Sure. It, it, it's poultry. It's, you know, lock, locker room talk or mm-hmm. something like that, you mm-hmm. know, or, or bar talk or something like that. It, it, it's, it's poultry. It's silly. It's whatever. It's when it gets more serious that, you know, it could really start to be like, okay, well, why do you have power if you're going to contradict yourself and what is in it for me? And again, that does mm. kind of go back to the politicians and the religious figures. Okay. Because when they have the power to influence many, as they have, <laughs> and they contradict themselves, all of a sudden you realize that what they're saying and you know the source of these things that are said, the source of influence, is a dangerous one. And that's where I think the element of forgiveness is really... You know, going to be tested in a lot of people. Yeah, forgiveness is an interesting point because, you know, before the web in general, you know, it's it's odd. I, I think that we were a kinder world in some regards, like only from my optics, right? But right, and we were 
willing to forgive and understand that there's some frailty there and now depending on the crime of course or the or the wrongdoing naturally we'll get, we'll get back to that but yeah. i have thought on that okay so you know we you do that but it was easier then probably because most people weren't getting quote unquote caught from their prior mm. this you right yeah. because it wasn't available to the masses yeah so you you could skate through in a lot of ways in life with a line of bullshit you could you could and but you mentioned and then this is again going down the rabbit hole of you know what kind of world we're living in it's the fact that it almost feels like and i've thought about this especially when it comes to like the mass shootings that you know when it's it's weird how sometimes discourse can be unforgiven like again it's the stuff like sports arguments or music arguments is like poultry or whatever, or you know, even relationship stuff. It's it's all sort of like petty poultry, you know, games like ha ha got you. But that at the same time, if you're doing a this you to that, that's a level of unforgiveness. Like no 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 no, you said this, you said this before, you know, or, you know, we'll forgive you as long as you admit that you did this, but you got caught. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile. It feels like these major crimes that are going on, whether it be the mass shootings or stuff of that nature, sexual assault being another one, it almost feels like the language there is becoming more forgiving. Oh, and I okay. think that, and I think that's where social media plays a, a darker role. Right? And it's not just Facebook and Twitter, the mainstream ones, you know. And we we talked about this on the show before, you know, the dark web like Reddit, you yeah. know, that that's yeah. That's that's kind of a place where the real you know, villains of the earth and sort of gather and say, you know, it's like, I want to shoot up the school day. You know what? That doesn't sound like a bad idea. And you're just like, what? Yeah, that's a subculture of just evil. It's just, it is a subculture of evil, but because it's, you know, more accessible to find people who think like that, to have that sort of common that's mindset, scary. That's scary. it is scary. And that is becoming, in essence, more forgiving because they're having that eureka moment the other way. They're... Well, they're finding commonality. I, exactly. I, have, I have these deranged feelings, but I just discovered there's a whole bunch of other people who are having the same feelings. Exactly. And that's the kind of commonality that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago might get shushed out because, you know, you really can't confide in anybody to say, you know, they can't find anybody to pump you up and say, no, that's a, that's a good point. I, you know, I didn't think of it that way, but that's a very, you know, intellectual point. And it's like, no, you know, just say he's going to put a bullet in everybody in this bar. That's not something you want to say. So it sounds like we're not managing. You know, it's another example. We're just not managing technology. We're just not. We, humans are are choosing not to manage the, what the web can do. Well, from a positive standpoint, I, I well, he, well, let me ask you this, Eric. Okay. I, I just, I, I agree with you that we're not. But mm-hmm. I let me throw this at you: Is it our job to? I think within mm-hmm. our own circles, it is. But I think from a you know global standpoint, or or even a national standpoint. That's where authority figures have to step up and say, okay, enough is enough. This isn't right. And I don't care if you and five other people agree. If, you know, 300 million don't, I'm sorry, winner's over here, you know, give it up. Has our law enforcement uh, ever been able to keep up with technology? No. They always, they're always in a reactionary phase. New technology comes, a whole new crimes are created, or new communication into crimes, and they're always on the catch-up. At least if that's I, what it seems. I could be wrong. I mean, maybe they do know about this stuff ahead of time, but it seems like they don't know. I, I think you, know, you bring up a good point, and I, I'm not going to say you're wrong about that, but I will sort of defend the police in that regard. 
Whereas I don't think they have the mindset, the capacity, or the psychological build to do that. I don't think the police are ever in a position, no matter what time of year it is, how much, you know, if the cr- crime rate's down or if pay's going up for them, it doesn't matter. When you're a police officer or any type of essential service where the element of emergency is always there, mm-hmm. you don't have time and you don't have the psychological wherewithal to think ahead. Mm-hmm. Because you think ahead and get lost back, you know, where, you know, sort of the back to basics type of yeah. situation, yeah. it's going to look so much worse than if you just sort of stayed where you are and sort of go went with the flow. Yeah. So I, I, I don't I think you're right about that, but I don't necessarily think that's a crime on the police end of things. Now, if there were enough people in order to pull that off, then OK, you know, mm-hmm. but I just and again, just like teaching. <laughs> yeah. You know, when it comes to police officers and essential services, and that's been a big thing in Beaver County for the last year and change is that nobody is, you know, overflowing with personnel for a variety of reasons. Either they don't want to do it, or the pay's not good, or mm-hmm. the situations are becoming way too dangerous. Mm-hmm. And again, when, when there's that element of danger there, you can't really, I mean, if, if you're just a regular firefighter or police officer, you don't have the time, and you know, your, your department probably doesn't have the funding to think that far ahead, or to take the time to think that far ahead. So I, think I, so. I I think you're right about, again, I think you're right about them being behind the eight ball when it comes to all these different uh is that the right expression i don't know but you know they're they're sort of behind the game when it comes to technology but they can't they 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 can't look look ahead because if they're focused on this and they miss this yeah it looks and they're and like you said they're in a reactionary stance just by the nature of the job exactly so go back to forgiveness for a second do you feel that that we are either in or we've been in um i don't know an era where forgiveness is almost on a on a broad scale almost kind of impossible because the reminders are always there and you know it's like the reason i say that is it america was a great for being able to redeem yourself i mean like america loved a, a redemption story that used to be the case i think decades prior yeah I'm not really sure that's like that anymore because I think once you're down, they're going to keep kicking you, and the proof all there to keep feeding the anger is there because it's on the web. It's all it's there. It's there. Yeah, I think there <laughs> there's an element to that. I also think it's a matter of again, can we talk about information being there? It's it's tough to say. It's tough to say because I, I I think if, I think the idea of forgiveness or forgiving somebody for their lives. I think the best way I've seen it positioned is that the best kind of forgiveness or perhaps the best kind of apology, for example, is changed behavior. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, and and I agree with that. I believe that if you change who you are, you learn from your lessons that you make or if the, whoever did you wrong learns from their lessons, that's changed behavior. That's a perfect apology. And then I think at that point you can, you know, truthfully and you know honestly forgive him i think what was the grapes of wrath was very much a mm-hmm. tale in that of mm-hmm. you know and then in the bible you know i, remember, I watch veggie tales i remember that some of that stuff <laughs> veggie you remember veggie tales you were you were a parent once yeah i was i that yeah i don't remember it from a child's standpoint but i definitely remember no. seeing it not that i partook in a lot of that but I'm, I'm sure you were my age when that came out yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, God. Thanks, Matt. That's your reminder. Oh, you're welcome. Well, yeah, hey, you want to talk about generations. Huh? Let's, I do. Let's... Well, yeah, we are. We are. I, I just, 
I wonder about our ability to actually, number one, want to forgive. Is it more sexy and fun to beat up on people uh, virtually? Only virtually I'm talking about at the moment. And then do is is the society set up to forgive? If we if we're in this virtual world now and how it blends with the physical reality, yeah, uh, is it is it conducive to forgive? I I don't think it's necessarily hard to forgive, but I think it's becoming way too easy to dirty somebody up. Okay, and so like let, let's take for example like let's um, for for lack of a better index of people who have been in that position like let's say joe biden's going after donald trump Mm -hmm. and let's say you know you know donald trump said something very very heinous not necessarily out of character for him he would never do that and and joe biden says well this man said something wrong i believe what he said is wrong and this needs to be something that needs to be corrected in the american landscape you know what's going to happen next someone from the woodwork is going to come on saying hey joe do you remember this thing that you said back in 1985? Do you remember this thing yeah, that you he, said back yeah. in 1999? He probably doesn't have a lot of moral high ground to, and to do that. That, I think, yeah. is the bigger problem. I think it's a bigger problem where if someone tries to call you out for doing something wrong, it's just as easy, if not easier, depending on you know your back catalog of media. That's instantly available today. That's instantly that available. Wasn't, that wasn't 20 plus years ago. Exactly. For them to dig dirt up on you and say, you know, okay, if you're so Mr. Moral High Ground, explain this. And I think because of that sort of, you know, domino effect of, you know, throw, and, and again, we reference the Bible of, you know, he who, you know, doesn't, you know, he without sin cast the first stone. Mm-hmm. It's a damn rock fight out there, man. It's just like it is a rock fight out we're, there. We're, we're stuck in a quarry and everybody's just throwing stones at each other and not realizing, hey, wait a minute, this might not come back to be well with me. I'm going to hurt too. But it's almost unthinkable to not let things go unchallenged. Things that are vehemently, again, I don't like the reason we're defending, but I mean, if it's something that you're, that offends you, your sensibility that just, and, and pretty much is, I don't know, not very kind. I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. If you don't state, as a politician, if you don't state your disagreement with that, then if because you're afraid of being called out for something you did years ago, if that's the state we're in, then it's going to be just a free-for-all, and there's not going to be any checks and balances there. You're right, and, I, and, and it almost makes where a lot of po- these politicians go slightly more respectable, and I say very slightly, because it feels like they're ki- they're they're somewhat self aware of that sort of level of you know pointing the finger, but they just kind of walk through it and say, "All right, you caught me. What of it? You know, you, you said I, you found out I said this so long ago. What of it? I'm just gonna keep doing what they're doing anyway." And there there is something relatively rock star about that. It'll be a lot cooler if it didn't affect us and our you know because again we, we go back to the idea of power. We go back to the idea of you know, people having this sheen, this verine of, you know, hey, I'm in a position of power. Therefore, I have the authority to tell you what to do. And once they're sort of found out as to be as, you know, faulted and as contradictory, self-contradictory as we are, then you start to question, well, why are they in power? Why are mm-hmm. they in power? Mm-hmm. And that's where the distrust comes in again. Do you think that 
there could be any movement for generations to understand each other at all or do you think it's just built into the it's built into the human experience because I'm sure every generation I can tell you all the shit I did that pissed off my parents and all the music that I listened to that scared them and he might be smoking that wacky weed, Dan. What, what, what's he doing? It's just, you know, and, and that is, and before that, it was my parents listening to rock and roll, Elvis Presley. It freaked out my grandparents. Oh yeah, and every generation probably has. Yeah. So, but I just think because of the web, that's the game changer in this whole equation. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I just like it's got to be interesting for you folks to see us on social media. My mother got on Facebook like 10 years ago. I was horrified. So, <laughs> no, it didn't last very long. But I'm saying I had a little feeling of that as a middle-aged person. You know, like, Ooh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, to see, you know, I wonder, it's a, it's like this. there's this Facebook thing, this social media thing, where we all go out on it from like what age? What does Facebook allow you? Thirteen? Or what's the youngest age you can be on Facebook? Oh, jeez. Whatever it is. Let's just say for it's just humor me. It's seventeen. Let's say it's seventeen. Okay. But from a seventeen-year-old on, and we all enter this world, but the hierarchy—if that's probably a bad word to use—but I'll use it. Like the the organizational hierarchy of society in terms of not money or anything, but in terms of like age and demographics gets mm. flattened out because you're all in the same playground. You're all in the same play. You're all the same. And I don't think that's healthy. Uh, see, I, I I know what you're saying, and I, I and I think there might be a little bit of that when it comes to social media, but I don't. I, I think it comes in equilibrium when it comes to consequence, because if you you know you get caught on social media saying something that you shouldn't have said, or you you disagree with somebody on social media, you know, you're going to be able to find somebody or. You know, be with somebody that might agree with you, you know, and, and the numbers are somewhat equal and the values again, when we're just talking about values as they are from a very simple standpoint, when it comes to things like relationships or money or politics, you know, once you hit that sort of threshold where it's like, OK, we're in this playground, we can get to have these conversations, then, yeah, it is a bit more even out. But I think if it came down to the the traditional hierarchy of age that we're all raised on mm-hmm. I think if it came down to that that does resurface I think the human side of that will resurface at some point as well okay like I think you know basically if you were having a argument with your parents saying well I believe in this well why believe in that if we get down it's like well I'm your you know mom or I'm your dad and I'm gonna say this and you know you're my son so that we're gonna have this conversation and I think that's very capable of taking place on Facebook. Okay. Especially in a familial setting, you know, or a family setting. Rather. Okay. Um, when it comes to strangers, it's probably a little bit more evened out. You know, somebody like a thirty-year-old me, you know, going after like a you know fifty-five-year-old radio show host, you know, it, it becomes a little bit more of an even playing field there. And again, that is in, in, insinuating that you know other types of power don't come in there too, because that's essentially what it's all about. It's about power, and while Having the same platform equals that out a little bit. It doesn't completely equal it out, I don't think. Okay, because you're saying there's okay, there's like a currency within that platform. Whether, yeah. Whether it's likes or followers or whatever, or just presence on there. Yeah. So I think I think there's okay. a presence there too, but 
I think because it all stems from the real world, there's enough of that traditional hierarchy that's going to win out in the end, whether through someone just not arguing with you anymore mm-hmm. or asserting their humanity over you, even in real life. Mm. Do, do you do you think that our my generation? Um, do you think we were really that far apart from you folks, or do you think that we just don't put any effort on trying to figure out your generation's point of view? Do you think that we just kind of not write you off, but almost accept that there's these differences, and that's just the way it is, and we're not interested in learning your learning your position? <sighs> that's a good question. That's I know it's very subjective too, but I'm saying it looking a- at it as a whole. As a whole, I think there becomes a point because we're talking about that level of, you know, becoming from from childhood to adulthood where you have that eureka moment of realizing that there's another side to things. I think there's a second eureka moment where you sort of stop that fight, where you stop like really like pushing like like pushing yourself up against a wall on either side, and then you just sort of you know fade out of it. And I think the, the 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 thing with your generation is that you have the access to have the same level of information or continued insight as us, but you've already reached that threshold of just a waste of my damn time. You okay, know, this is this is it's, it's exhausting. You know, I have more important things to worry about. You know, the end is nigh. You know, mm-hmm. got to deal with that fangled life insurance thing. You know, <laughs> something like that. And, and, and it, again, again, I think. There's a youthful energy that sort of comes with it, that ever, that 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 does happen in every generation. Right. Every generation has that moment where it's like, you know, I'm young, but I'm old enough to, you know, fight for what's right and everything. And then you just stop fighting. You just stop fighting. Okay. So, do you think that's a good that's a good point? Do you think that that is inevitable with most movements that this country has ever seen? I think so. I think so, but I think also that it may simply because of the level of, you know, call it currency, if you will, but level of resources that it comes to having this sort of thing, you know, once you get tired of doing I mean, think about like the hippie movement, you know, mm-hmm. think about what it took to be a hippie back in the day. You know, you mm-hmm. got to smoke a certain amount of grass, wear a certain amount of tie dye, listen to a certain amount of records. And then at some point, someone just in the room says, you know what, screw this. And I remember reading um, you know, a, a piece on it out of this book about the history of rock and roll from Rolling Stone. And this, um, this writer by the name of Tom Smucker, he was writing about disco. Okay. And how disco was sort of a very moving antithesis for a lot of like the early rock of the 70s. Because, I mean, I and I know you were there. But and I don't mean that as an insult. I was a kid. <laughs> you were a kid. You were a kid. But at the same time, you probably had older siblings or older friends that you yeah. know, you know, were the types that would go to a room, rip a fat blunt, and mm-hmm. put on some Led Zeppelin, just sit there. I did. But and and, and and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I didn't think so. At the but time. from a stylistic standpoint, somebody was like. Where's the feeling? Where's the spiritual fulfillment in this? You know, I'm I'm not moving. I'm just sitting here. I'm listening to a record, and I'm doing this, and I'm listening to another record. I'm not really, you know, having sort of any type of communal vibrancy. Okay. And that, you know, come to think of it, that might be something that comes back in some sense 
down the road because obviously in the last few years with COVID, we've had sort of this sort of isolationist um, experience. Certainly. Where you've sort of been divided. And, and granted, we've had you know the virtual technology to connect, quote unquote, with another. But I feel like there's going to be a point, at least stylistically, or even maybe just in pop music, where that's going to come back, where there's going to be this movement to get people to come together, dance together, kind of like disco did, because they realized it was this thing. And then disco was a thing. No, it was a big thing. I mean, it was the point where... You know, you can go anywhere in New York without hearing disco. You know, they had their own disco station. Oh, my gosh. Studio 54. And then you had a lot of genres of music that were blending disco elements in their music. It was a thing, for sure. And and hip-hop probably... Uh, elements of hip hop were formulated by from disco. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, No question about that. No question about that. And, you know, it was definitely a bit more of a, you know, sort of get up and move sort of type of primal reaction mm-hmm. compared to, and, and, and this isn't a matter of intellect or anything, because there was a decent amount of smart disco as much as there was a lot well, of, certainly. you know, smart rock. But at some point, they're just, you know, just like anything else, you get bored, you're just like, okay, I want to get up and do something. So and, was it more of a sophisticated thing, you think? What do you mean? I mean, like, you talk about like how, uh, you know, like a movement gets tired because at some point in time you move forward and the... Do the protesters and get do the, like do the, do the protesters just get tired of protesting and find other things to do, or does life the concerns of life get more complex as they get a little older and they have to address that stuff? <sighs> Same thing with music. I mean, did, was disco like an extension of rock, a little more complex? I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's a little bit more of the former, just sort of the natural spiritual element of I'm tired and I don't want to do this. The perfect example, at least I've seen in media. You've seen the movie Forrest Gump, right? Yeah. Yeah. I sat through that thing. Not a fan? I'm not, I'm not a fan. I, I watched it, though, twice. I, I liked it. I, I, I do I do agree that it is kind of more of a you know sort of pastiche of moments rather than an actual like film. I liked it better the second time. I walked out the first time. But the, but the, but the scene that I'm, I'm going to is the running scene mm-hmm. where Tom Hanks just starts running and mm-hmm. running and running and running and running. And all of a sudden, he has this, this troop of people behind him run all over the top place you know news people are following him and you know at some point he just decides to stop running you can't explain why he's just tired he wants to go home he wants to go home and i think there's that spiritual element in all of us when it comes to that youth or, or any any type of movement in our lives where we're just like you know what we're tired and we want to go home and there, and there are those out there that never do that not you many know, though not many though not yeah, many good though. point not, not many fight that fight forever, and that, that's why it becomes so hard for any major movement to sustain any level of, you know, consistency. Yeah, and, and I, I question, too, like, I just don't see a lot of examples in my life where protests and movements had a lot of ultimate benefit. Um, benefit's the wrong word. Benefit subjective. I don't see a lot of movements in my life on this earth that came up, existed, and then huge changes in society were made because of that movement. Now, before I was around, for sure. Oh, yeah. But not like in my life. I don't think it's been. 
yeah. real prevalent. And sadly so in some instances that it hasn't been. But I mean, right. But I don't I don't have a like my parents could say, hey, I we can look in our life and see that there were some very important movements which changed society. Yeah. Not so much in my life. No, nah, not so much in mine either. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, because I mean, you talk about the civil rights movement. I think mm-hmm. that was that's like the the landscape. Absolutely, all time yep. we you know made social change, and yep. that was that. That was right before me, though. Yeah, it was and a few years before me too. But uh, but in, in all seriousness, if you think you know, there really hasn't been anything that's revolutionized anything since then. I think that's the key word there: revolutionize. Because you talk about protests and gatherings and movements. None of them have really gotten to the point of revolution where they, you know, people were willing to fight to be who they want to be. You know, the closest thing I can think of is the LGBT movement. And even that's kind of not hasn't really like like I think there the change to acceptance has been a lot more gradual and a lot less violent than the civil rights movement by a lot of means. And that's not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think the impact has been bit more stifled than the civil rights was and again that might simply be because of the information age because it feels like now like um you know the lgbtq people are getting more rights now but because of information because of the context behind it, it feels a bit more <sighs> gradually accepted more than a thing to fight for when it yeah. seemed like the chips were really against you yeah like it, it feels like more of a thing where it's just like there, there's enough moderacy in there where people are just like eh, okay whatever, but with racism that's really not you know mm-hmm. you're either very for it or very against it, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's why the civil rights movement had to happen. I would like to think that most most Americans, you know, are not even remotely for any kind of that. I mean, not that you have the solution for it. And you might even get tired of hearing it all the time. Yeah. But but still, push on the shove. That, you know, your honest assessment is, no, I'm not for it at all. I would hope that that's the, what most people believe. And there's not a big swath of people out there that are actively for it and will articulate that even worse. I mean, and show that. I hope not. I hope not either. I hope not. And I think that's another problem that it, we're, we're sort of waiting through right now is that because of the information age, because of the accessibility to everybody's opinion, it feels like there's more of that that's existing now, but I feel like it's always been existed. It just mm-hmm. hasn't existed no. with a platform. I think you're right. Yeah. So it feels like there's becoming more racist people out there, but they were always racist. They just didn't have a computer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a bit. Yeah, they didn't have have a voice. No, you know, and that's like we always joke around. You know, it's a great thing about the internet; gave everybody a voice. That's a bad thing about the internet; it gave everybody a voice. Yeah, (laughs) it's like like, we're giving everybody a voice. Anybody could say anything. What did you just say? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Why did you say what? (laughs) And that's and again, I mean, it's 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 a tough thing with a platform. You know, it's. You know, everybody has a right to that platform, but yeah. once they – and that's another thing that I think really becomes – and I don't know if this is a generational thing or a – excuse me, edit that out. Of course. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 the one thing I think people have to – because I've heard so much about this, especially when it comes to social media and television. I think, like, the Newsmax thing comes out mm-hmm. is, like, I think – that people saying, oh, you can't take that away. You know, it's freedom of speech, freedom of speech. No, the hell it is not. 
Freedom of speech is basically boiled down to you can say anything you want and the police cannot arrest you right. because you have not broken the law. Right. And that is your right. Unless that you is cause, your right. Well, I mean, you can't crawl. You can't well, fire. Right, right. But with, it, with it, very few exceptions. With very, 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 very scant exceptions. Yes. But once you elevate that to a platform, whether it be television, whether it be movies, music, or social media, mm-hmm. it no longer is a matter of right. It is a matter of privilege. Yeah. Because you have the privilege to go on these sites and say or sing or do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And if the owner of That's that... That's lost on a lot of Americans. It, it is. And and they think that because Twitter or Facebook is and, or even YouTube is this sort of playground where it feels like things are free, is because, you know, and... and, and that does get to a bit of a discussion about you know who's running things and what they see and how they see morality and whether they because it, it's not a stretch to say that the CEOs of these platforms like people like Mark Zuckerberg, the Dorseys, even mm-hmm. Elon Musk, for as much of a jackass he is, <laughs> that he. How do you really feel about Elon? <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's not buying a Tesla very in the near future. Eh? I could really get into it. My parents are probably going to watch this, so I'm going to keep my mouth somewhat clean. <laughs> but even they have like this sort of expanded thought process of what's right and wrong. They don't have any real hardcore bigotry, it seems. Mm-hmm. Like they don't be the smartest people on earth. Again, Elon. But they have more of a broad acceptance than the old media outlets used to. No question. Because, you know, the newspaper editors of the day or the newspaper moguls of the day, you know, if they were, you know, breached about a story regarding, you know, um, feminism or, you know, gay pride or black pride, chances are it's probably not going to get published. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, at all. Like, not even a thought. Mm-hmm. Where it's easy to say that the CEOs of these sites today are probably a bit more expanded and a bit more out there in that tone. But it doesn't mean they're completely free and open to everything. And that's why no doubt. they have the right, whether you agree with it or not, it, you know, in a, in a privileged setting, they have the privilege just like you. And they have the power to take away that platform if they feel you are misusing it. Yeah, 100 percent. And that's it's a really crazy time because you would think that these firms, these companies that run these. Let's just take the two biggest CNN, Fox, right? That run yeah. these run these. They're out to make money. Advertising dollars. Well, to me, the way to make to, to now again, this is the hundred yard view, right? Because obviously, if you're looking around, this is not how it's run. But if you step back and look at it, the sources, if the goal is actually to make money, wouldn't it be better to appeal to the most amount of viewers possible than bring the most amount of ad dollars in? But they seem content just nurturing to a segment, which does limit their profitability because the essence of growing a company is as many flipping customers as you can possibly get. Uh Uh-huh. But at the same time, and then and, and this is an interesting and you you bring up a very interesting point, is that what do they care about more? Do they care about the image or do they care about the profit? Because I feel like by limiting their um situation, they can, you know, sort of rest on their laurels and say, Okay, well these are the only people I want to cater to. That's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And they have the right to because number one 
it's their company to do mm-hmm. whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. And number two, that's lost on a lot of Americans. It is. It's very lost. And number two, also lost on a lot of Americans, is that they have enough money to not compete. Yeah. If they, if, if CNN's ratings were in the toilet, if they had, you know, if they were fighting tooth and nail to keep their employees paid. You know, they would, you know, probably do that. They'd probably cater. They'd change their whole image. They they would do a lot of things in order to try to, you know, keep that there. But because the people up top have the money, they're set for life. They're, you know, their grandchildren are set for life. Their grandchildren's grandchildren are set for life. When you, get, when you don't have that competition, you don't have that drive to appeal to the most people, you don't have to appeal to the most people. That's right. Yeah, and that's the weird place that we find ourselves in as citizens with the, you know with very limited news sources. I mean, we've now consider some folks consider social media a news source. I hope not, but apparently for some folks it is, right? It is. I just had a whatever news I, means. I just had a thought. I just had a thought, and I, I don't know why I have these thoughts that I have. And I don't know why I'm going full like, hey, man, what's <laughs> it's, only, it's only beer. It's not a hallucinogen. Not yet. <laughs> True. But I thought about it, and I'm thinking, you know, we talk about competition, you know, economic competition. And it's weird to think that, you know, we have the two most, you know, the, the two richest people in all the world, you know, Elon Musk and... Bezos, Bezos, and they're mm-hmm. and, they, and they still have like a bit of a competitive edge to them, mm-hmm. despite having all that money. Yeah. Now that being said, their, their competitive edges are very minimal, and this is kind of a weird thing. Like the fact that they both kind of are in this space race, in a sense, or they were in the space race. Mm-hmm. Who knows? They might be working together for all we know. We don't know. They might be. Who knows? Uh-huh. But the, but the point is, they're showing off the sense of competitiveness that yes. means they're, they're feeling that there's something to be competing for mm-hmm. and wouldn't it be nice and i know i'm going a little bill hicks with this but wouldn't it be nice for them to try to compete for something that would benefit everybody mm-hmm. like try to it would be nice if a couple of ceos out there with billions of dollars try to out um oh, what's the word i'm looking for here um out philanthropize mm-hmm. the other one mm-hmm. like saying like oh you gave 50 million dollars homeless i'm gonna give a hundred dollars a homeless son of a bitch chop that yeah, why like, don't we why don't we pick a problem well you know it'd be nice if they would as and, and it's so funny because the last thing in a capitalist industrialist wants to believe in is the collective right but once they're super wealthy they actually form this little this little collect, collective of ultra wealthy people oh yeah so you put them in this little collective and you say okay we're gonna take a problem and we're gonna go full bore at it for like a five-year period yeah let's try to solve something anything that any social ill that is possible to solve and i i, I mean food the hunger thing is definitely solvable it's it's a sin yeah in this country but i i wouldn't even go as far as saying the housing thing is solvable the yeah. housing thing is very, on a bigger scale for sure. Yeah, it may, it may take a little more time, but it's very solvable. And the, the people who can make it happen, the people who have the money to make it happen, they're gonna, not going to starve. They build several housing complexes to get the homeless out of the city. You know, here's their argument though, and, and it's you know it's it's heady. The argument that I understand it to be is, well, we, um. We we've made all we've made an unbelievable amount of money, and we've also paid an unbelievable most of them. I'm assuming an unbelievable amount of money. Not me, not personally, but my my companies. Mm. An unbelievable amount of money in taxes to this government, and 
I've already done more than my share through this incredible tax dollar figures hmm. to help this. Right. And I'll see it getting fixed. Like, where's the where did the fuck did my money go? Yeah, you know. I mean, I kind of I kind of get that. I mean, I don't know how I would feel because obviously I'm not worth a couple billion dollars, but I think that's a prevailing thought with them. I do. I think I think you're right, and I think it's a matter of yeah, and and that's you know we we I've we talk about the show, and I have heard you know Rocco use the term blissfully dissatisfied so many times, and it's a great term. Mm-hmm. It's a great term, but unfortunately, it feels like the world is being run by the constantly dissatisfied, like the pessimistically dissatisfied, the um, agonizingly dissatisfied. Like no matter how much, or, or, or actually, I want to let, let's flip that even more. It's the agonizingly satisfied. Mm, okay. Like they have the means. Like they they're fulfilled in every which way, but they're you know it, it's so very Citizen Kane, where you have everything in the world except that one little thing, that one little thing that can make you whole again, and because of that. They're going to be dissatisfied. They're never going to feel fulfilled, and they don't care how much further they have to climb. If they never reach that mountaintop, they're going to keep climbing. If they have to drag the rest of us with it. So what are your thoughts on my generation and maybe the generation above me, which would be roughly your grandparents' generation, Mm -hmm. generally speaking? Yeah. In regards to our thoughts on capitalism, our thoughts on work life, work life balance, like when it comes to work and careers and endeavors and how we view the world in that way, how is that much different or completely different from what you think your generation is viewing right now? Pretty broad question. It's, it's a broad question, but I, I think we can start in okay. some places. For example, I think. There was much more of a direct situation for your generation, and I think the, especially the generation before, where you may have had like these thoughts. Because early generations, like the early of 20th century, there was really not a whole lot of room and a whole lot of outlets for you know, stardom or media or anything like that. It was basically you lived in a town, and if you were in a town, you could get a job somewhere in that town. And that was pretty much it. Or if you went off to college somewhere, you made one big move and then either made a big move back and worked in that town or you stayed in that town and got a job there. It was very more direct. And there wasn't a whole lot of options widely available. But as time went on and technology changed, it felt like there was a bit more of you know broader options out there. Like I could move from point A to point B and try this. Or I could... You know, give this a try. And I think the idea of, you know, trying to be somebody, and again, I think this is where stuff like the hippie movement comes in where, like, you know, we could be like this for a few years and still be all right. But what that did is it created this mentality of, okay, you know, I could be this for a few years. I could take a few years off and do this and try this. And I think that never went away, but the amount of things to do in that off time kind of did. Certainly. You know, there wasn't any mate. I mean, th- think about a teenager. I mean, because you have two kids that just got out of college or either. Mm-hmm. One's in, Yeah, one's getting ready to graduate, another one in the middle. Yep. Yeah. But imagine if they were to get out and say, you know, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to mm-hmm. take a year off and just try to, 
you know, be myself, be young, be fruitful. Is there any way that they can do that in a way that could be considered communal or part of any type of movement? Hmm, it's interesting. I don't think so. They used to call that dropping out. Like, I think there was a college movement in the early 70s, you know, like you graduate and you drop out for a while. You know, whether yeah. it be for a year, hopefully not too long, you know, but who knows? Right. And even if you did, there was always that thing of you can always get back to it. Yeah. You always sort of get back to the working world. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel like there's been a oh, heavier lilt on the idea of being satisfied in the workplace, you know, working somewhere that you want to enjoy over the course of the last Oh, geez. 20, 30 years. Do you think my generation settled a lot, like found the job and stuck with it and went through it? Because that's how I feel about my parents' generation. You know what I mean? Like they settled a lot. Yeah, well, I think they did settle a lot, but I think in in essence, they really didn't have any major exposure to other options. Like they never, I mean, because it wasn't just a matter of there being not that many more options compared to what it is now, but you also didn't have the information about those other options. You didn't. And so that's why I think, you know, and the idea of settling back then was not necessarily something that was, you know, not noble. It was noble because you were going to, you know, financially support yourself and your family. And that was that, you know. But now that there are more options out there, again, you could say, well, that doesn't look like fun. Maybe I'll try this. And yeah. you have all these options, but because, and then, you know, supply and demand being what it is, mm-hmm. is that it sort of still recollects itself to, okay, only so many people can be this, mm-hmm. you know, the powers that be say they are going to be, so many people can be this. So ultimately it's going to have to revert back to, okay, we're going to have to make money somehow. Right. And until, and, and that might be the interesting thing. That may be why people are so against cap. Like my generation seems to be more against capitalism than any other generation is. And I think the younger generation is going to be even worse in that regard is that this idea of settling back feels like such a blow to the spiritual sensibilities that it's like, no, I'm going to fight for my spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight for you know enjoying what I do because I don't want to spend my life doing something I don't enjoy. And whether or not that comes to fruition, I don't think it's going to come to fruition for a while. Like I think we're probably a good 30, 50 years away from that. Mm-hmm. Or there's that revolution that says, I don't have to work because you can't make me. But I still think there's that element of you're going to have to make money eventually, so you're going to have to do something you don't like. There's nothing wrong with that, except, again, in the spiritual sense for some people. You said earlier that, like, my parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, you know, they settled, but... Back then, it was noble to have a job at a factory and take yeah. care of their family. I think that we need to um, look at how we view work in general. It'd be nice that any gainful employment and industrious work would be, be, would be viewed as noble. Unfortunately, we live in a world where everything's graded on, you know, it's graded and evaluated as opposed to like, what about the concept that, hey, Regardless of what it is, if it's legal and it's gainful and it's industrious and you are and you receive mm-hmm. payment for it, yeah, that's noble in itself. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, well, at least when it comes to jobs, I mean, because I think when it comes to, I think there, there 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 does seem to be a 
flip on that when it comes to like the the trade jobs, the industrial jobs, like you know, working in a factory or working mm-hmm. in like machinery. Mm-hmm. I think those are the kinds of jobs where I think it's you know very noble to say, okay, I'm going to go to school for this. I'm just going to work in this, and that's that. You know, because those kinds of things you know will help us. You know, it can help make better cars. Can oh, help 100. You know, it be very beneficial to us in the long no run. Doubt. No doubt. But I think when it comes to other jobs, like of course the the typical debate is over fast food, mm-hmm. and I think that is. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that's something like within 20 years that sort of goes by the wayside. I really do. Automation. Well, not just. Well, he, here's why automation. I, I think automation could go in that direction at least keep those places in existence but you got to think about the situation you know the only people in that situation who are having any sort of good time are you know maybe a scattering of teenagers who are you know, getting their first paycheck and appreciative of it or the ceos yeah there's really nothing in that territory that's beneficial to anybody else unless they have that mentality of um you know i have a steady job and i get to enjoy this and and, that, and I know and I know people. I have family that works in fast food, and they've been doing so for years, and they enjoy it, and they appreciate it. It's a paycheck, and it works for them. Mm-hmm. But I feel like for a lot of um, you know my generation, the generation beforehand, there's always been this sort of mythos of being in fast food sucks. Hmm. And when you combine that with the fast food itself and what purpose it serves. In our greater collective, which, to be honest, really isn't much. I mean, it serves a purpose, but it's not a purpose that can't be bettered. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of, oh, you know, it, it's very easy to go out and get a burger and fries and call it a night. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, it can always it's not the best option. It isn't the best option. And it's so ingrained in society, however, though, like, uh, I mean, you're saying that you can see a time where it goes away. I, th- I think so. I think I think because of the information age and because of, I mean, you want to talk about a, a boom over the last few years, the amount of cooking channels, the amount of cooking, you know, entertainment that has come place. I think gradually, it may not be a sudden shutdown, but I think within like 20 or 30 years, I would not be surprised if fast food becomes sort of a second option to, you know, cooking at home and trying to avoid that's because because once you when you combine the politics of it with the actual objective side of it, which is you know getting a burger and getting fries and eating it, you know there are better options for the kids in the workplace. There are better options for you as a consumer, mm. and that's when I think everybody's going to raise their hands. It's like, what the hell are we doing here? Yeah, I can get better food. You can get a better job. Let's tear this thing down. And Could happen, where, and that's where automation would come in, and that's where the CEOs could stay afloat. But it's not going to be the same. Yeah, I, 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 I think you might be onto something there. The, uh, and I say this as a man who's going to go get sheets after this because I'm hungry. <laughs> I have the solutions, but I'm also part of the problem. Well, we all are. Yeah, I know. The interesting thing for me about um, that idea of, of nobility and you know what what is in, in noble work is, I. I've always viewed any kind of gainful employment, someone that's get up and do the job and meets the, whatever the schedule is and actually it becomes, um, lack of a better phrase, a good employee. Yeah. Because they're performing the function correctly. And usually most folks that get good at it want to do something, either something more involved or they want to they move up within an organization. That's noble. Yeah. And for us to 
to not um for us to, to declare that not noble is insane but i i feel that's happening man i do i think the, i think that we have devalued the basic love well not love to work but i mean like yeah i guess you could say love to work or love to to if someone feels pride in their job and they're getting something from that besides the money and they have an idea of where they want to go. Other good things can happen to them. There's a lot of noble behavior in that. I, I agree. I think I think there is a lot of noble behavior in that. I just think that because of the the access that we have to all the options that are out there, it becomes a level of dissatisfaction when you don't get that. Okay. Because I think, and I, I agree with you. I don't think there's any shame in taking a remedial job. Or taking an entry level job or anything like that, but when you know there's something out there that could be more spiritually fulfilling, I I understand why you wouldn't want to be motivated to get up every day and you know light up the gas stove or whatever the case may be or you know fire up the griddle. I get that, but at the same time, where where we have to bridge that, I think at least for right now, is that acceptance of listen. Yeah, your time may come along, and you may just have to grind it out for a couple years and then try somewhere else. You know, and and I think people who are wholly dedicated to finding that job that they really want will eventually get there. But there are some people in the middle who might sort of just you know get stuck on these dreams, but not really fulfill them in a way that they want to do them, and they just have this idea of. Well, you know, I should have been this, but instead I'm this, and I'm just going to be upset about it the whole time. And, and that's a sad way to be, but unfortunately, a lot of people are like that. Yeah, I think also with my generation, too, um, I think a lot of my generation looks at your generation and doesn't understand that. They don't understand the – they don't see the world in technology and options that you do. So we're looking at more traditional jobs. We're looking at the more traditional kind of life. And mm-hmm. we're, we're understanding, like, why can't you at least do the bare minimum? Why can't you go work here? Why can't you do this? Or why can't you find happiness within this this chosen field you've chosen? We, we kind of puzzle sometimes, I think, at the uh, dissatisfaction that we feel coming from you folks. What do you mean? You job, mean, job dissatisfaction. What, you're saying it's surprising that we're as dissatisfied with the jobs that we have, or yeah, maybe maybe that they're not valued. Okay, case in point, like I, again, I only know what I know, what I've experienced, right? Person, so I only know personally what I've experienced. But the '80s or the early '80s were tough. That they were tough in, in Western Pennsylvania, job wise, right? Mm. And my little journey was I got every job I had, I valued like crazy because my existence depended on it. Yeah. So when I look out and I see people that, you know, are their job hopping, I figure, well, the economy is probably good right now. They can. But when I see people that are just dissatisfied and won't work at all and don't find any value in that, I guess they just don't find it valuable to work. It's puzzling. Like I, I'm trying to understand that. I'm trying not to be judgmental. I'm trying to understand where the mentality comes from that. So I think a lot of people in my generation, those especially that don't have an open mind, probably look at it very harshly because they're comparing it to what they went through. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. And I think, again, you know, I, I don't know many more times I'm going to reference him throughout the course of this show, but 
uh, another Rocco saying, or I, th- I, don't, I, don't, I can't recall if it's Rocco said this or you who said this. He's going to get my saying away to Rocco here. But uh, <laughs> whichever one you said is, it is. There's been no time where it's become easier to exist than right it's mine. now. That's, yeah, it's that's too easy to survive. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, and I think I think it is. I think it is becoming too easy to survive. And I don't necessarily think it's a matter of people just like you know surviving off the government or anything like that. Like you know, people could just you know chill at home and be with their parents and you know go that route if they feel like that's more comfortable instead of going out and working every day and their parents are okay with that yeah, then what that was about right 100 yeah, no the harm no foul so you know and, and 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 i get why a generation might look at that and say well that's just weird and crazy and i don't understand what the point of that is but again it's all about spiritual satisfaction and i you know i'm not gonna hamper on somebody for doing that if that's what they if, if everybody can agree to that because once party a and party b agree to it you know who gives a damn what party c thinks yeah i would like to hope that most in my generation are open-minded enough to un, to just do exactly what you just said like let people live their life yeah i don't have to like it and agree with it but i ha- i have an obligation i think as a citizen a civil citizen to be respectful enough to just understand that that's how they're going to live their life let them live their life the way they want. Yeah, you know? I mean that's not a hard concept, but it, it's puzzling if you if you're having a discussion about it, like you know, and trying to understand that viewpoint. Eh, I probably really don't, I don't get it, but I'm also a person that believes that if I don't understand it, I'm good. I don't ha- I don't have to. Right. I don't I don't have to interrogate someone or make them feel small in some way in a yeah. conversation because I don't understand. You see what I mean? It's not it's not that important. Well, I think it's 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 a lack of understanding in some respects. I also think it's a matter of jealousy in others. Could be jealousy because I think the a judgment lo- that comes with it. Yeah, cuz I think a lot of people might look at something like that and say, you know, you know, how dare you live with your parents? You know, I had to go out and work for a living. It's yeah. like, well, okay, you know. You know yeah, there's probably some of that. The other thing too that really puzzles me though is like i see what you're saying about your generation in a lot of ways about viewpoints in terms of options and fulfillment i get all that Mm -hmm. but then i see a lot of uh young folks i'm assuming some of them are entrepreneurs some of them might be just manipulating social media where it's a lot of brand name stuff and fancy cars and clothing and it seems very materialistic so i'm kind of like torn like sometimes like do because how, how are they getting that stuff if they're not either being industrious in some regard, you know, whether it's a job, a career, entrepreneurial endeavor? I mean, it seems like that kind of brand name stuff is is kind of important. Right. I can understand why that's puzzling. It's puzzling to me, too, how, you know, those who haven't been in the trenches somehow come away with the spoils. Mm-hmm. I, I get that, too. And I'm not. See, and I think there's 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 a, there's a, there's a few avenues we could take with this. Number one. You know, there's the avenue of you're right. It is kind of just weird how people can afford things that are of high value whenever. Well, they... I don't understand that. I, I don't. I think it's fine if it's legal. I'm telling you. Well, or, yeah. I, I just don't know. I don't understand how that happened. No, I agree, and I, and I think it is a matter of. I, I think it would be legal, and when it's not legal, it's pretty easy to find out because, again, the dumbasses. <laughs> Secondly, though, I think when it comes to stuff like, you know, you talk when you talk about material things like what exactly are you talking about well i mean there's a you know i i have a i don't intentionally search much on instagram so my algorithm is probably pretty bland but i'll see 
I'll see like a lot of uh, stuff for you know name brand clothing, a lot of Gucci and Louis Vuitton, mm-hmm. and a lot of like Rolex and fancy watch stuff, and yeah, um, it, um, cars. Yeah, you know, or lifestyle stuff, and you know, here and there, something you think somebody, almost like something you'd see someone middle aged who's got like twenty years in with a very successful endeavor finally attain, mm-hmm. but it's being, it's being used visually in the ads by very young people. That's where I think some of the confusion lies. I think I think you're right, and I think there there again there's a, there's a few avenues. We go with that. I apologize for repeating myself, but I think, you know, when when these kids who don't have jobs and they're just living at home with their parents, if they're out there making money in a sense, you know, or or if they're working like a part time job and they don't have to spend on like a mortgage or rent or anything like that, you know, then they can spend stuff like that. The other thing is, too, is not so much with cars, but especially when it comes to like purses and clothes, is that. A lot of times, especially nowadays, there's a lot of hand-me-downs when it comes to style. So, like, you might look at something that's, like, super stylistic, but whoever th- gave that away at a thrift store Got or anything it. like that or okay. online. So there's some frugal shopping going on to, there is to some, create the there's image. A, there's a little bit of frugal shopping. I'm down it. with that, though. And that's it, good. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of hustling, but it, it's hustling for, you know, a, okay. a good cause. But I think the big thing is a matter of, you know, maintaining that type of style in a certain way, sort of the, the, that thriftiness. Okay. Which, again, if it's spiritually fulfilling to you, cool, awesome, you know, mm-hmm. good on you for scouring the market and, you know, flipping yeah. things a certain way. But there's just some things that you cannot flip in a way that's stylistic or cool. And I'm sorry to say it, and, and again, this is not me shaming or, because I live at home with my parents. I'll be the first to admit that. I live mm-hmm. at home. With my mom Mm -hmm. and my brother. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with that ethically, morally, or anything like that. But in no sense of the term, outside of maybe economically to, you know, tarnish those damn capitalists, is that ever been cool? It's never been cool to live at home with your parents. But I think that's changed a lot. It's changing. It's changing. No I, doubt about I will that. I'll say that it's there's changing. There's no doubt about that. It's changing the point where it's becoming more acceptable. You know, certainly from an economic standpoint, it's become more acceptable and a lot more. You know, like like people like honestly, I've, I've ran to some friends that say, "Oh, you're still living at home with your parents." You know what? Honestly, I, I don't blame you. It's a it's a it's a, you know, just save your money. Whenever you're ready, you're ready. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to certain parts of life, and, and I'm and, you know, I'm talking as a guy here. You're you know, you're a yeah, guy yourself. For sure. You know, there's certain things you can't do at home. That is very yes, cool. Yes, yes. So uh, that is, I mean, and, and I'm not going to say that all of capitalism is a metaphor for that. Right, right. But at the same time, that is a sacrifice that you're going to have to make if you're trying to play the system, which, again, yeah. you are cool. But there is you know, some consequence with that, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah, I, so I think I think what we talked about on the on the on the radio show many times, I just think there's a lot of people and I'm, you know, I'm 57, 57. But when I look at other 57s that I'm friends with or grew up with, they're not all of them. Some of the, some of them had the mindset where they, because of the point in life that we are and when we grew up, some didn't adopt the web. Some didn't really get web savvy outside Mm -hmm. of learning a, a social media app on their phone. That's the extent of their web savviness. Right. And that's, a lot of times we've had to teach you, so yeah, one hundred percent. And that that has limited their their broader view 
of everything. Yeah. So it's just more of a, well, you know, those kids are doing this to that. And and we end up sounding just like our parents did with Mm. us and their parents did with them. And I try really hard not to, I try to stay current enough, but, but I also was aided by the web being a central part of my life in my thirties and growing up with it. So my viewpoints already a little more, for lack of a better phrase, a little more hip because I was working in that sphere. You know what I mean? So I, I, mm-hmm. I don't, but I see a lot of like downward looking and judgment, judgmental bullshit. No, I, I get that. And I think, you know, the old saying goes, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? So I think that is why a lot of people, you know, will see something like the web as a necessity. You know, I thought the web was a necessity at one point. I still kind of do. Because well, I think it's today, don't you think? Well, it so. has to be in a sense, but when you, you want to learn things, but also if you want to, you know, stay connected with others. You know, it has to be something. But some people don't want to connect with others. They feel like they've already known anything, and that's why if they decide they don't want to you know, go any further, they just shut it off and say, no, it's not for me. It's an interesting conversation because I used to have a different view. I used to have that viewpoint that um, if you didn't want to stay connected, it would be so easy just, you know, you know, just uh, not use the web or whatever. But the, the ridiculous thing is if you – do not use the web and you shun your phone and you do all of that and you go back to the idea of, well, I really need something to pick up the phone and call somebody. The world doesn't work that way anymore. You may ultimately be really shut off because people have conditioned themselves not to to use the phone to speak much anymore, but everything is done through texting and, and like, you know, written mm-hmm. communication. You could really end up isolating yourself. You're almost, like you said, you're almost forced to get in there and have at least some usage of it. Yeah, or at the very, or if you really want to go crazy, force yourself really hard to not do it. Like it's, it would take so much more effort to be, you know, a, you know, isolate. They call that a luddite. Is that a word? The luddite. I think L U D D I T E something like that. That's someone who didn't who basically pushed against technology. She learned uh, something. I think. Yeah. So look at it, friends. Luddite. Yes. Word of the day. Uh, um, <laughs> one nothing. <laughs> one nothing indeed. No way in hell I was going to pull that out of my senses. Not tonight. But you know what? I, that reminds me of something else, too. When we were talking about um, back to the uh, protests and all that stuff, you know what's interesting? It's like I think a lot of people are interested in movements when they are young when they appear to be generally leaderless. But once a hierarchy within the movement and and figureheads rise in the movement and then maybe commercial bents start seeping into the movement, Hmm. that's when people look at it and go, like one of my favorite phrases was was Johnny Rotten said, you know, Occupy Wall Street was one of the best movements I ever saw because it was leaderless. But then all that kind of changed and it really just came down to some hippie playing a flute and it, and I, I got it it was like it, that's how it was looked at it at that point it was just like well you know now they have a leader now there's money coming in now there's merchandise coming in now it becomes a thing and the real it just kind of fell apart it just the essence of what they were trying to do wasn't at the forefront in the end right well, it's it's weird because I you know I think back to the you know the the the, the counterculture of the '60s, and think about who their leaders were, who their heroes were. Instead of folk singers, right? Yeah, well, those are folk singers, and even I would even go to some of the same like some of the artists who played at Woodstock, like Hendrix and Santana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Like they looked music based. It was music based. Was art based. And really, when it comes to art, you know, you do have that. I don't think they had an obligation in order to do that. Although, although I wonder. I mean, I've seen articles where Hendrix said, you know, like he, he was definitely someone who was in the category of agonizingly satisfied. Like he, or you know, just he never found the right type of sound that he wanted. He always was going for no that doubt. extra sound. No doubt. And I think that's kind of what the movement was hoping for, like something to go in that direction. Excuse me. And it just never it never really happened or never really materialized at that point. And I don't know if it's a matter of leaders got in there and changed that. Because I maybe because I, I will say, as cliche as it is, that if you really want to end a movement or any end any type of you know, revolution, make it cool. Make it cool from a, you know, interesting marketable standpoint. Interesting. Because, you know, I always felt like whenever it comes, because like, imagine like if somebody tried, I mean, because that, that's kind of what the early 70s was. The early 70s music scene was kind of making that cool, you know, you know, almost to the point where bands like, you know, Foreigner or Boston or so, and they were great bands. I'm mm-hmm. not going to discredit them, mm-hmm. but they were sort of the corporate answer they to don't. hippies and sort of the rock movement. They like, don't. You know, we, you know, you guys came up with it organically. Well, we're going to come up with it, too. It's going to sell really good. And it did. And it did. But was it the same sort of organic material as before? Absolutely no. not. No, it was because uh, because that music initially came out of something, came out of the angst. There was a message that had to be said there by those artists. Right. I mean, everything from, you know, from, I would say, Kiss all the way through the end of the 70s into disco. I mean, it was a commercially driven product. It was, it really was about being successful first. It didn't come, yeah. they weren't doing it for any kind of uh, altruistic Values, right? And I, and I think that's where you know, we we go back to distrust. You know, somebody like the Carpenters, and I, and I like the Carpenters. I know we're probably going to disagree on that. I got, I, got, I got the Carpenters album, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you have to be in the mood, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very distinct mood. Um, but you know, like like the Carpenters doing what they did, like they were honest about it. They were in the business to be successful, you yeah. know, make pop hits and everything else. Of course. It's when it blended that it started to get a little bit of distrust, I think. When it felt like Zeppelin was in it for the money, or it felt like Kiss was blatantly in it for the money, but they were still, you know, rebels in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's why somebody like Johnny Rotten, like you mentioned, you know, you got to give credit to him, you know. He did what he did, and he stopped. He did what he did with the Sex Pistols, then he stopped and changed it. And then it. he said, when he did public image, he goes, we are a corporation. We're in it to make money. He just said that. I mean, I'm going full 180, but, you know, it was, but it was honest. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, this is my next thing. Is what I'm right. It's going to be weird, but we're, we're a corporation. We want to make money. Right. He didn't half-ass it. And I no. think where it's, no. when it was half-assed, that people were starting to be like, mm, I don't know about this. There's no, Yeah, there's not a lot of pure honesty left anymore. I mean. No. There really isn't. I mean, it, it's. Like like the him for example, he lives his a very unvarnished and very uh, blatantly honest life, which offends a lot of people. And I get it. I mean, if yeah. it's, you don't like if he doesn't like what you're wearing, he'll tell you. I'm not saying that's a great way. It's that's not a very kind way to live. But his whole thing is like, if I don't tell a lie to myself, let alone anybody else, I'm peace. Right. It's interesting because none of us could do it. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a hell of a way to live where you just don't, yeah, you know, put any bullshit. 
Yeah, it's it's tough too because you're so used to it. You're so used to having. I feel like, and then this could get really deep here, but I feel like there's so many connections that are ingrained within us that are ingrained by bullshit that are impossible to untangle. Okay, they're impossible to cut off, and I don't know whether it's because of economics or family. But you have the and, and and it could be even something like fear, you know, the no fear doubt. to you know, oh no, doubt. the consequences. Like okay, no well, doubt. if I stop talking to this person, are they going to come after me? You know, am I going to end up on the six o'clock news one way or another? <laughs> let's hope not. Yeah, let's hope not. That's but yeah, I, I think there's you know there there there's because of those sort of ties that bind is that people can't really be honest with themselves because they know if they were truly honest, it may have been a consequence where they can't be honest or dishonest because they may not be here anymore. 100%. I will say, though, that, uh, you know, you raise a good point. You you almost, I would imagine it's very difficult to be honest with the rest of the world if you're not being honest to yourself first. Yeah. And that's, a, that, that's an inward, that's an inward view that I don't think a lot of humans want to have. No, they don't. Especially in 2023. No. And and I think, too, it kind of goes back to the political side of things where I feel like if they were and, – and that's where people have to do something that a lot of people they don't want to do either is which is prioritize their, their – they, they need to prioritize themselves and prioritize who they are. Because I think if they really wanted to be honest with themselves, they might find that a lot of things they think they were being honest about themselves might go out the window really quick. So whenever they strip themselves down of you know their beliefs for you know what's best for them, might say, okay, well I guess I'm not going to do this anymore. And it's hard to do that whenever you you know may have a public image that says otherwise, and you may have to like strip that. I mean, and and artists have done this a lot too, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think one of the most famous ones was was Bowie. Bowie going from this, you know, sort of androgynous superstar to this very not androgynous sort of almost, you know, neocon type to, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. a lot more laid back. And and, and Bowie was a shapeshifter, obviously. No doubt. Not in the, you know, conspiracy theory sense, just in a... He might have been. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know? That's beyond my comprehension. (laughs) The um, in terms of people being honest with themselves, I, I've always said this: if you took a hard, hardcore left uh, thinking person, a hardcore right thinking person, and you sat them down and you handed both of them this stated national Republican and Democrat platforms for the year, because I think every year they kind of state what the platform is for their national party. Yeah. And if you really had a conversation with them, and if they were being honest, they could be honest. There's no way that each of them believes every tenet of that. I mean, it just that's understandable, right? A logical person can see that. But I think that we tend not to be honest with ourselves in that regard politically, and we just join a team and just go. You know, that's what I mean by looking inward. I mean, if you say you're a Republican. And you're dyed in the wool and a staunch Republican, and you fly the flag, and you're going to die on that hill for your Republican candidates. And the Republican platform is there. You can make the argument, well, I believe in most of this stuff. Well, that, that's an honest statement. But if you actually say you believe in all that stuff, like hook, line, and sinker, I just don't believe it, Matt. 
There's just no way. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's got to be some deviation from that based upon your life experience and your viewpoint and religion or whatever it and is. That, and that goes back to what I was saying where if they were to be honest, tr- truly honest for ourselves, would they be able to you know publicly admit that based on you know whatever backlash they could receive? Because I think one That's thing... That's the problem. That is the problem. And I think one thing that has always been a part of culture is that no matter what the circumstances may be whatever the new thing is whatever the popular thing is is always sort of been in the new mm-hmm. and sometimes in order to be get to the new you may have to go to avenues which may supersede you know certain levels of morality good point you know because i mean i think you know it, it would be very easy and you know refreshing to see you know somebody come out as a bit more moderate on the republican side or the democratic side but I feel like there's this element of if I do that, I am going to, you know, perhaps rob myself of certain possibilities. And do they want to do that? And it feels like more choosing not to instead of saying, you know what, fine, I'm not going to be president. I'm you know, just going to stand up here and be who I am. Do you expect to be lied to every day or do you go in? to most circumstances giving the other party the benefit of the doubt and wait to wait to find out whether you're being lied to or not I would say at this moment in time I would say I'm not expecting that I'm not expecting to be lied to honestly because I have you know my, my circle now is more honest than it's ever been which is a good thing mm-hmm. but there were times where I was expecting it lied to just because, you know, the the source of conversation, you know, and the, and the source of, you know, the position from where, you know, two sides were talking to each other with me being on one side could not meet at a middle ground that was truly honest. Okay. You said that it's very difficult today to lie because of you know the historical no i i I think i think it's easy to lie i think it's hard to get away with it Ooh, okay so are we not are we because i think a lot of lying is going on probably just like it always has in every generation yeah but but is there just an assumption that it's like i'll worry about that later you know let's do it i'm just gonna worry about that later consequences yeah And and i think too we we talk about um yeah the idea of forgiveness in you know, in, in, who knows what's going to be on the other side? You know, we no, none of us know. None of us truly know for sure what's going to be on the other side. I'm sorry, that's a controversial statement. If you want to, I know. You know, thank you for your ten seconds. But um, I think when it comes to the world that we live in, a very sort of hierarchical, you know, call it oligarchy, if you will, based mm-hmm. on capitalism and power and stuff like that. That. If you take away the element of forgiveness in the afterlife, it becomes very easy to get away. I mean, because being forgiven and getting away with things are not very dissimilar. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how you do it. Mm-hmm. And so while a lot of these things you know, may not be you know, stuff you get away with by a moral law, yeah, I think it was uh, Sam Kinison who once said, you know, if you know you're going to go to hell, you know, why miss it by a couple inches? Miss it. 
And I feel like a lot of these uh, politicians right now are doing exactly that. I think a lot of you know, even religious figures are doing that. And there's probably a lot of common people who are doing that right now. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that you know, without some type of code, right. there's really not a whole lot of finger pointing you can do to say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Because if there's enough people saying, well, you know, what makes you so great? Or, you know, there's a lot of whataboutism when it comes to, you know, right or wrong these days. And it's also muddled, it seems. And it, I don't think it's getting to the point where it's going to be like so violent and, you know, confusing that people are going to just going to snap. But it's definitely not trending in the right direction either. No, it is not. Okay, I want to end this awesome discussion with you, my friend. Hopefully one of many to come. Yes. Uh, I want to ask you, it's a right turn, slightly. But just see how it ties in. If tomorrow SETI found that there is a fastly approaching spacecraft coming to this country that we don't have any information on and is not responding to our attempts of communication and and just basically within four or five hours there was an announcement made because you know that within like a day they're going to be here the prevailing wisdom is from scientists and, and according to the plan that we have for this eventuality is that we are not equipped to handle it the unwashed masses are not equipped to handle it, and the civil disorder would break out because it may throw the concept of God for many people who just believe, you know, mm-hmm. how could you be an alien if there's, you know, there's only one world and heaven above in the clouds and all that stuff. Do you think that we would be able to handle, at least for the initial couple hours, and stay orderly and stay respectful of each other and maybe even find a uniform, uniform force of, you know, um, you know, um, I don't know, un- unity against this, or do you think it would be freaking hellish? Well, I, the, I'll start by saying this. I, I know we've talked about this a while ago when we were we touched. T- we touched on it. We touched on it during you know the old iteration of the Air Media yes, show. Yes, many alien yeah, shows on many, there. Many. <laughs> Four in a row for my. And I have all the video. <laughs> Prove it. And I, have, I have all the audio, so we're, we're even. But um, I don't know. That's hard. That's a that's a tough one because I, I feel like I feel ultimately the split will be about fifty fifty. Fifty, you know, the, the I think that is a situation in which moderacy and open mindedness is, is going to win the day. Like what do you mean? Like if an alien were to sh- like like let, let's just take you and I in the room. If an alien were to show up tomorrow, how would we react? I would react like, huh? Yeah. So there it is. There's an alien. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how cool. I feel about it too. You know. I mean, it took you so long. Yeah, but you know, it, it might you know sort of ignite a few neurons that says, you know, I wonder what's going to happen next. I wonder what they're going to do with the alien. I wonder where it's going to go from here. You know, how are we going to get there? You know, it, it'll flare that creativity, but it's not going to be such a violent reaction because the possibility's always kind of been there, and we've had this sort of that open mind about it. It's those who are not going to be open minded about it that have sort of you know closed off their sensibilities sort of closed off any other possibilities of life. They're the ones who are going to freak the hell out. And I, and it's, and it's hard to say because, you know, it, it, I mean, it's kind of funny. Think about it. Cause the aliens coming to earth, it's just gonna be like anybody else coming into this earth. A lot of times it's just gonna be luck. 
you know, if they if they land in somewhere like you know Minneapolis, you know, they might get away with it. <laughs> so if they if, if their spaceship lands about three miles north of uh, Dallas Fort Worth, they are not going to survive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Touche, probably. Yeah, probably. I, I just because I, I've watched a lot of. Um, a lot of like uh, television programs, but a lot of stuff on the web of like just theories of what would happen, how we would react, and that takes it out of the science fiction realm and really talks about how we would interact with each other. Yeah, and it's never everyone to a fault's not real good. I mean, even starting with like Stephen Hawking, he was like, "We don't want the aliens to come because it ain't going to be pretty," you know, in terms of what they may do to us and what we may do to each other. Or how they may react because we can't. They'll see how we're treating each other. And if they're coming here for any judgmental reasons, they might just wipe us out. Right. And and, and the other thing, too, and, and this is a mistake we make all the time when it comes to aliens, when it comes to the afterlife. Well, I, I, I take that back. I wouldn't go as far as calling it a mistake as much as it is sort of a, um, uh, that's what I'm looking for. Basically, An assumption? Yeah, an assumption. It's an assumption that if aliens or any type of afterlife were to exist, it would very much be based in our own human experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that might be wrong, too. You know, like, I mean, there's a very scant possibility that if an alien spaceship were to land on Earth, an alien opens up the door, all of a sudden it's dead because it can't handle our environment that much. It was able to survive on the spaceship, but as soon as it got up. Uh, you know, it's it's you, you don't know that. And if it if it gets past that, then OK, now we're going to talk. Now we're going to have to find out, you know, what happens from there. And we're, we're so uh, and it does it does play into our own arrogance. We are just so I think it's um, we're so short sighted or so naive to believe this. But there's some arrogance there, too, that we know from a size approximation how big or small these things are going to be. I mean, who's not who's not to say that they're infinitesimally small and they've been here yeah. forever, right? Or right. or they come here and they're they're five miles tall as they step out of their, you know what I mean? We we have no idea of scale. We just think mm. that everything is a reflection of our world, right? Especially the afterlife. I mean, hell uh, and heaven are basically you know, hell's kind of the worst form Mexico. of Mexico. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a joke. You're watching Fox <laughs> News. No, Touche. Um, Touche. Um, no, but, but like seriously, like think like Tijuana. <laughs> yeah, maybe Mexico City. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Guadalajara sounds nice. It is. Um, but it, it, going back to the point, I think yeah, you, know, you talk about what people think of when they think of heaven and hell. You know, heaven's you know the most peaceful form of humanity, and then hell's the most eternal you know punishing form of humanity mm-hmm. and number one we're assuming that they you know full-on exist and number two we're assuming that they're based on the human experience and all of that couldn't you know be true and it could also not be true i always used to say this to uh my my catholic parents and family they didn't like it too much but i used to say yeah. i used to go well what if what if this is hell like what if like like living and you know actually that's that's pretty good if if we believe in redemption maybe that you know this is the worst it's going to be yeah i don't know we don't know i mean i know that there's this uh, system of you know i think it's the the hindu system where you just get get reincarnated until you reach enlightenment 
which means you don't have to keep going through this until you know you've you've learned all your lessons. So I won't come back as a tortoise. <laughs> See, that's getting into that's getting into interspecies uh, reincarnation, and that's again way beyond my pay grade. But I, I you know, I, I but it, but it's it's just I don't know, like, and maybe it's again, maybe it's based on my own experiences that you know after you know seeing the world be so judgmental toward each other through action through just even visual judgment why would that be any sort of peace when you get to heaven you know yeah you know i mean maybe it's a miracle that we all just get up there and accept each other but you'd like to think as if i hope if that is that is the ultimate end and for and furthermore if i may end on this sure if that is such a goal that is to be achieved, the idea of being peaceful towards one another, accepting towards one another, if that concept exists like a unicorn, you know, we may not be able to staple a unicorn, you know, a horn or horse's head and call it a unicorn, but we can certainly start to get along with each other. Here. Here. Novel idea. <laughs> thank you, my friend. This was awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I, it's, it's, you never disappoint. Yeah. We'll do it again. We will do it again. All right. Fair enough, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Our friends, Matt Terzik, we are out. Drive home safely. <laughs>